This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So welcome, welcome to Script to Screen. This is our second episode of the season. You know, Script to Screen studies the perspective of the screenplay from writers, directors, producers, and actors. And we're really excited that we have the whole shebang tonight. Uh, this, the show is produced by the Carson Wolf Center, Department of Film and Media, and these awesome polytheater interns that you see behind our cameras. But let's get right, let's get right to it. Uh, so, Paul, yes. people come up to you all the time and sing old-time rock and roll. <laughs> they sing it to me? Sing it to you. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it like seeing Risky Business in a theater with mostly an audience that mostly you never get to experience before in a theater? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's really different than watching it on an iPhone. Um, <laughs> and it's different watching it in a, a group of people, because you know, um, comedy, you know, when when, when you uh, test comedy, when you make these things, you want it to always pack the room, and now things are seen with you know by yourself or two people. So it's it's a it's a different. I think it's a totally different experience. How's it for you, John, as a producer? It's it's very nice. Uh, first of all. To see it with uh, how many people here have seen Risky Business, and how many of you have seen it in a theater? That's actually yeah, a pretty, even pretty, I, pretty, good pretty good. There's so, a generation gap there. So I think <laughs> I, I think I think for us it's it's great to see it, and then most importantly, it is the uh, vision of the film as Paul had created it. So this is only That's, the second. Yeah, time. this is only the second time that last scene has been seen intact because the, we uh, went to war with the studio over that and lost. And uh, so uh, we were able to... Uh, the first time it was seen was two months ago at the Academy. So it hasn't been seen ever. I mean, in 30 ah. years that this film's existed. And I've never seen it. And you've never seen it. Well, and he didn't even know. <laughs> no, I was. I I thought I was hallucinating because <laughs> I knew that that had happened, and I knew I remember what the scene had been. Right. And I, I thought I was hallucinating. And to me, they cut out yeah, one of the most important lines in the film, which is, "Why does it always have to be so tough?" And that's not in the other version. And then they go off bantering, which was like nails on the blackboard to me. Well, also, I mean. It, as filmmakers or storytellers, uh, imagine having your work judged and having the ending change so that the meaning is completely different. And then reading the reviews about that. And sometimes the reviews are right yeah. because they're reviewing an ending that holds them right. So it's, it's very, very gratifying, even if it took us 30 years. 30 years to see it. <laughs> now, is this the version, because you know this was showing in Burbank. Uh, last week. This uh, would not be this version. It this wouldn't be this version? No. No, this doesn't exist. We cobbled it together tonight. Did you really? Yeah, we took That's why that little, there was that little black pause when it goes into his glasses there and there. We, we, in honor of the movie Risk of Business, we decided to take some legal risks and show something that, that wasn't right. allowed. Uh, but Curtis, Amazing. As an actor for you, though, how, how was it fun seeing you know, a crowd with your jokes oh, and kind of like, you know? I loved it. I loved it. It was, um, <laughs> it, it, I, I mean, I saw it a bunch of times when it came out, of course, because I'd never been in a movie before. So <laughs> I saw it in three different cities over a period of about three weeks. Detroit? I, Detroit, New York, and Los Angeles. No, Detroit, New York, and Chicago. Oh. 
Um, but I, so I saw it a ton of times when it first came out. And, uh, but, but I haven't seen it in 25 years, probably. I don't know. Yeah, the thing about time. Curtis is um, we cast for like six months. Six months? <laughs> More than that? Okay, we cast for a long time. And uh, when Curtis came in, he had that character nailed. It, what you saw on there is what you walked in with. with the door yeah, yeah, well, uh, yeah. And it was like, it was so reliable for me to have that character in place. <laughs> I didn't have to worry about that. You know, Bronson was pretty much the same way. These guys were just so solid, it really... Um, to have that kind of reliability in some areas, because other stuff is, gets really flaky, um, <laughs> was really helpful to me. And uh, he, he, Curtis just had, I can't imagine this film with any other actors playing those two parts that you guys play. Well, it was, it was hugely important for, for all of us. I mean, for, the, for those of us in the movie, most of us had never been in a film before. Right. And for having, for having this be your first movie pretty much spoils it for, for you. Oh, speaking of which, I did talk to Rebecca De Mornay this week, and she wanted to be here, but her youngest daughter is having her Sweet 16 party on Saturday. Oy. Oh, boy. And uh, they're preparing. <laughs> so the mind she wanted to, me to pass that along. So you mentioned that, uh, with the casting with you. Uh, so when you read the script, was it just something you just connected to the character immediately? Oh, like yeah. you just knew it? Well, no, I, I knew it because I knew someone in high school who was that guy. And high school was recent enough at that point that I, I pulled on my memories of him. And uh, that's why I, was, I had that memory in my head for the whole time. Yeah, but uh, <coughs> it, when Paul talks about the, the very unique ability both in the audition and in throughout the piece. I, I probably cast or auditioned three or four or five thousand people over the years. I don't think there's more than two or three people who were able to do something like that, like Joan Cusack and then don't leave. Yeah. I mean very, very rarely and every single take. And it was really it was it was like you went, whoa. And then we and then we moved around the pieces and we brought you in with different actors and to see how they would work. Ensemble. Yeah. It was Bacon a long was stretch. I mean, it was, I remember it being. I mean, you you remember obviously better. But it, from my perspective as an actor, it seemed to take forever. It and did. we would come in and, and do it over and over again for you know over a period of months, and uh, it did take a long time. And then the great thing was. You did something which never happens anymore. Um, you brought us in uh, like a week early uh, to Hang rehearse, yeah. which, which for us, the guys, Bronson and Raphael and me and Kevin and, and Tom, meant being picked up at the hotel in a van and taken to a mall and left there to hang out. We were just, we, that was what we did. We went and we, you know, every, you know, we, I mean, we would do read-throughs, but the other thing that we would do is hang out because this was considered, I think, a really valuable thing for these guys who'd grown up together that they should feel comfortable. And so they would take us to, you know, 
malls or they took us to the Playboy Jazz Festival at one point, I remember. And I mean, we would just hang out. But the, the luxury of that, in addition to the doing read-throughs, you know, as we did with you, um, we, were, we had that luxury which no one will pay for anymore. You know, now they expect you to just show up and be natural. And then what did you guys see in Rebecca? Like, your scripted character, what jumped out for you when she was casted? Or uh, That was uh, the, probably the longest haul because she came in early and we had dismissed her, I think. Yeah. I mean, to the extent that we did. And then we wouldn't get anywhere. And I screen tested some other actors. I, um, and we came back to Rebecca in the I, end. I think when Paul... You know, when Tom came in and we thought, oh, this looks good, you know, getting them together was really the crucial element there. Yeah, Tom was working on the Coppola film, The Outsiders, <laughs> and so we could just get him. Uh, he read in the afternoon, and then we wanted to do a screen test of the two of them together, and um, he had to be on a plane the next morning. No, no, like, he, he had to come back. We didn't do it the same day. He had to come back from, he had to fly back. Well, I just remember this. I, to screen test him, because he had to be on the plane like yes. in the morning, we arranged to meet at Steve Tisch's house at five in the morning for a complete screen test with John on this cockamamie camera. Uh, VHS yeah. camera. Yeah. And I was picking up crews in the morning, and I was given an address in Los Angeles. <laughs> and it was literally five in the morning, it was pitch black. No cell phones, obviously, in those days. And I pull up to this apartment building, and no one's coming out. And I'm sitting there at 5 in the morning wondering, what am I doing here? This isn't <laughs> happening. And there was n I didn't have an apartment number or anything. There was no, no one to call. And uh, I waited for about 10 or 15 minutes. I said, this is ridiculous. I'm just going to leave. I went, give it five more minutes. And I did. And then Cruz came out. He was just late because he was so tired from me. But um, film history would have been a little different if I pulled out of there. So you really, you, you guys launched this. I mean, this, this was a big launch. This yeah, really yeah. catapulted him. This was it, yeah. yeah. Uh, what, what about him and the character really kind of, like, why, why, how did he stand out compared to the other actors? You were, the other actors? You know, considering for him. Uh, I, the, the way I explain it is that he could play naivete and heat. And he could be pushed around by Rebecca, too. There were, there were actors who were, could hold their own. They had too many tools to defend themselves. Tom was pretty vulnerable. Tom was 19 years old when we cast him. Um, and he could play that vulnerability, too. So he goes from that to the strength that he has at the end of the scene, in, that, in this version, which I thought was really important for him. So where did the, uh, the sex destroys the future, uh, the chastity thing, theme come for you? How did you... The what? Well, the fact that the, the scene opens with him, you know, wanting to have sex and his future's destroyed. Like he misses the <laughs> test. Oh, because yeah. he, he's, so con he's so anxious about doing the right thing and, and being the good kid, he can't even have a good fantasy. It's, <laughs> that, 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 was, that was that theme. It keeps, you know, interfering. He, he can't even have a fantasy, much less fun in his life. So that's why Curtis's character that provokes him all the time to take that action because he's so fearful of taking an action. It's, it's such an important dynamic. So, Curtis, you basically say you pushed Tom Cruise around then. Because then that's you I'll did. Say. You forced him to call Lana. 
or Jackie? The well, Jackie. Kid. I forced him to call Jackie. Yeah, that didn't work out so well. But yeah, yeah. Jackie was six foot four inches tall. Crucian. Yeah, he was a strong, great, guy. great actor. I actually yeah. used subsequently. Wonderful. Work walked very well in heels. It was very good heels. <laughs> uh, I, I just love you know the dad you know he starts with the simple thing of uh, playing the stereo bass you know bass and then, uh, bass. and then just the escalation of adolescence kind of like rebelling against his dad was that something you were thinking about you wanted a story about adolescence moving into adulthood pushing back pushing back um, no I think it was that, not so much pushing back against his parents it was like you know it's like just taking that risk. For a moment, to, to free yourself from the shackles that he felt, but then paying a price for it. That's classic. And uh, of course, Curtis, you have probably the most quoted line ever. Yep. Uh, I mean, I have a trig midterm tomorrow, and I'm being chased by Guido the Killer Fan. I'm actually, you know, really very lucky because I, mean, I was saying that this movie spoiled me. Um, for movies, and one of the reasons is the it's so beautifully written, and I wind up with several lines which wind up being quite memorable. Uh, the other being "What the fuck," the "What the fuck scene," and and uh, and uh, and the tri- uh, uh, Guido the Killer Pimp line. And it's true. It's the it's probably more than any other job I've had. I get those. I mean, you were saying, did people come up singing, you know, old time rock and roll to him? No, but people do come. They do recite lines, yeah. Sorry? Yeah, they do recite lines all the time. Oh, yeah. I was on a long trip to New York with this guy next to me, and this was like just a few years ago, and he was like going through the whole film. It was like. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Don't give away your identity. No, you try not to. Uh, it was fun watching with the audience because, of course, the audience went, you know, had a lot of fun with those lines. But the old-time rock and roll getting an applause after, that uh, scene was pretty Yeah, well, big. that's the most overused word in our, of our time right now. It was interesting. What's Many that? students came up to me I saying they, don't even, they hadn't seen the movie, but everyone has seen that scene. And it's, uh, or parodies of that scene, yeah, which yeah. is the same thing. And, and, in fact, this was parodied in Mad Magazine. Did you ever see the Mad Magazine? I have not seen that, but I did see... There was a famous one of Ron Reagan Jr. doing the dance on Saturday Night Live when his dad was president of the United States, which was pretty scandalous at the time. So also the music was fascinating. I mean, in the air tonight, Phil Collins, another, you know, supporting the the train scene. Uh, So as a producer, was it kind of a challenge getting the music or thinking about what would would work best for the film? Well, a number of the cuts... Paul had already chosen, actually played for me before he had uh, finished the screenplay. Right, I wrote to some of the music. Yeah, so the Collins and well, the old time rock and roll. Music for 18 musicians. Yeah, you know, so we sort of knew what we were aiming at, and this was coming from Paul. What was surprising, among many things, was that we were working with David Geffen. And David Geffen ran Geffen Records and was literally considered a genius in the music business. And as we started putting the music together, we thought we had a really, really cool soundtrack. I mean, like maybe revolutionary. And Geffen thought it was terrible and didn't want to put it out as an album, which back then everybody did. And we thought, like, David Geffen, I mean, a legend. He doesn't think this is good. 
So when we did the Tangerine Dream and we finished the score, which has Springsteen, Hungry Heart, which has, you know, every move you make. I mean, there's some pretty cool little pieces. Prince is in there. Yeah, Prince. You Talking know, Heads. Talking Heads. It was very cool, we thought. It only got released abroad through Virgin. And the way the, way the world works was it got pirated and brought back, this is pre-internet, to America and became a massively large-selling album of the movie. Of course, we didn't receive a dime for it. But, you know, and it turned out that we were right in this case, and David obviously did go on to do some good things, uh, you know, was wrong. But it just surprised us. It shocked us because uh, one of the things, besides just the, the choice of the cuts, was that Paul uh, originally was looking at the Steve Reich music for 18 musicians, and then we were looking for someone to score this. And when the Tangerine Dream uh, choice was made, and we went off to Berlin to do it, it was a completely revolutionary concept for a comedy, right? And this, again, was Paul's vision, as I understood it, which was you know, this embracing the dark side. So instead of doing little twinkly, twinkly music and telling you, okay, you're stupid, you laugh here, you know, it was creating the mood and telling the story, and you had to follow it. It was a little less, in my opinion, condescending to the audience. Uh, and that was a very, very big deal. And something, by the way, which rarely still happens, more often than not, you know, particularly with the big studio films, they want to tell the audience, you're stupid, this is where you're supposed to be scared, this is funny, laugh. Uh, and so that, that, that was a very bold choice. And in keeping with the, what the notion, you know, can you overcome your fears and be yourself, or are you going to be overwhelmed by them and be you know, some facsimile of what other people want you to be? One word on music. Um... We hired Tangerine Dream, which is a German band. There was three guys in, in the day. And um, they sent their first idea over here. I didn't like it at all. Uh, they were trying to write to a, a teen movie, which was not what, the way I wanted it to go. So we had to decide whether to stay with them or um, hire someone else. We had talked to a lot of other composers. We decided to get on a plane and go to Berlin to work with them. So we go to Berlin. and. They work in a church, which they converted to a studio, and they only work at night. So we'd start work. In, in, in Spandau, which was like that prison for Hess and everything. And literally, 6 o'clock yeah, at night we'd, to 6 in the morning. Like, yeah, 9. Or, and then we'd work till 5, 6 in the morning every night. So, um, but they were great. They were good collaborators. And in 10 days, roughly 10 wait, days. Wait, 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 Paul. You're leaving out the drama here. The first, <laughs> the first six days, yeah. okay, there was not one piece of music that was created that you liked. And we were scared out of our mind <laughs> because here we are taking this trip to Berlin. We're in the middle of a fight with the studio Over the ending. that is such a big, ugly mess. And we're standing there with nothing in our hand. And on the seventh day, Edgar comes in and... Sounds biblical. What? What did he do? He brought in Love on a Real Chain, remember? Oh, okay. you know, on the 24-inch, anyway. 2-inch master. And that was when... We got it. And, and, and so we, we got... We got it. I mean, it was, it was quite good. Now it's... Uh, it was last year. Maybe eight months ago. Tangerine Dreams came to the Granada here. So I said, I've got to go see him. You know? uh, there were three guys. Now there's only Edgar Froese. Froese. Yeah. He was one of the uh, original guys. He's in his 70s now. They're playing at the Granada. They're doing the same music. And it was like a... Oh, they played for over three hours. He had a young band with them, but they were doing what they were doing years ago, including they included Love on the Real Train here, mm. which was a 
cut from the train. So I wait to see, I wait for Edgar to come out of the Granada there. And I'm standing there and I'm holding like six pictures of us in Berlin from 1983. <laughs> and he was so moved that I was, he didn't recognize me until I showed him the pictures and then he was really moved. And he said that 60 to 70% of their success was due to the movie. It was really a sweet thing. Okay, they're still going. So I, one of my other favorite characters is Guido. Yeah, uh, pants. I love the scene when Joel calls him Buster and A-hole. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that was a guy with a lot of good laughs. I talk about how you developed that character. Because Joel Pantaleone is a terrific actor. Yeah, yeah well, I, I wanted someone who was um, what's, uh, kind of a weasel. Um, had that feeling to him. Um, but here, here's a little side story. David, who, you know, first of all, David's the only guy who would make this film. No studio wanted to make this film, including the studio where I developed it at Warner Brothers. They didn't want to make it. David Geffen was the only guy who wanted to make this film. So we owe him a debt of gratitude for that. And he was also very supportive while we were shooting this thing. We got into a fight over the ending, but um, he, uh, he was very smart about giving us enough time to figure things out, and if we made a mistake, to go back and fix the mistake. And there were mistakes made. We had, I had to go back and reshoot a couple things. Um, he visited the set one time, and we went out to dinner, and he said, you know, it's your film. I'm not going to tell you how to make your film, but I want you to fire Joey Pants. I don't like the character. And I wow. said, no, I, he, Joey's doing a good job. I want to keep him. He said, no, Joey goes. I said, nope, Joey stays. <laughs> because this went back and forth. They <laughs> said, well, I don't want to tell you how to make your film, but I want Joey gone by tomorrow. Did he say what was bothering him? I said, about no. Him? They didn't feel he was threatening enough, I think. They wanted something. I don't know. But I, I got what I wanted, and uh, Joey stayed. So um, it, it, it was the God. character I wanted. How was that for you, John, that getting in the middle of that one? Uh, I thought you weren't really in the middle of that one. No, I was at the dinner. And, uh, yeah, I, you know, he did say why, but I'm not going to repeat it. But that was the only thing that uh, David, why his minions were sending me notes, which were driving me crazy. That's true. (laughs) But I don't know if that was David or his minions. Well, that was relative courtesy at that phase. That seemed tame later. Yeah. But him and Tom, that scene in the the, the truck at the end was hysterical. And they played it so subtly. Guido was so good with selling him back the furniture. It was, I can't imagine if you pushed too hard a little bit. Well, also, I mean, one of the things that was uh, very important about the film was, in many ways, this was Paul's reaction to The Graduate, which was 1967. And now we were shooting in 82 or 83. I can't remember exactly. And, you know, for our generation, uh, when The Graduate was made, there was a, a notion... Where, where the line plastics was mentioned, and plastics at the time meant everything that was false and bad in the world. And this was a very idealistic time, things were changing, and it really rang true for our world. That we didn't want plastics, we wanted a better world. Forget what happened. By the time Paul was making this movie, Reagan is president, you know, there's been you know, quite a bit of bad economic times. And as the kids in this, you know, one of those opening scenes, you know, are saying, do you want to do something? No, we just want to make money. So in a way, the world had changed from plastics being this anathema of everything to the kids at this time would have jumped at any opportunity to earn a living. So that was sort of the thematic nature. And it was, and it was a very important, and I thought, 
you know, very, uh, very sh sharp perception and then a way of, uh, of enunciating it through, through the narrative. So when at the very end, you know, or, or excuse me, when Joey Pant shows up and says, in a sluggish economy, never ever with another man's livelihood, you know, now how does that come out of a guy, you know, who's carrying, a, you know, a shotgun or, you know, assault weapon, you know, that kind of thing. It was, a, again, a very tonal balance, which Paul is uh, uniquely gifted, I think, at executing. So that, that, that was what that world was. Uh, and I thought that was part of what was so important about the kind of tone. And you see, you know, you're a smart kid, Joel. You're a smart kid, Joel, you know? I mean, that's the way, that's, that's what the character was. And I don't think that subtlety was something that really landed to David initially. Well, the thing is, too, about the ending, you know, when I was trying to convince him, in, in Rebecca's face at that last scene, you see the dark side of the capitalism. You see the sadness and the trouble this girl is going to be facing. And it's, it's what Tom sees in her face, too. And it's, it's, it's real and it's sad and it's dark. So I'm trying to explain the dark side of capitalism to a guy who's intent on becoming one of the wealthiest guys in the world. <laughs> you know? I thought, that's really a fool's errand. You know? <laughs> and he did. <laughs> and, he, and he did. That so, Curtis, uh, <laughs> great script, great scene. Were you disappointed they didn't give you a Lana character? A Lana <laughs> character? No, no, no. I was fine without a Lana <laughs> character, actually. But, I mean, that, that seemed to line up more with my actual life anyway. You know? <laughs> so, you know, you, you, you talk big about not Did you not smoke having... a pipe? I did smoke a pipe at the time. I actually did smoke a pipe. That wasn't my pipe. That was the, that was, it was one of the camera crew. There was a guy on the camera crew, and you had a sudden idea, because we were shooting that scene, and you said, and he, this guy always had a pipe. And, and you, you came up and you said, let's try it again, only this time. Reach in and take a pipe out and light it. And we borrowed his pipe. That was, it was just something you decided you wanted to see. But it was perfect because I'm, I'm so, all the, I mean, it's such bull****. You know, I mean, it's all just bull****. really is. But, but what, uh, what Curtis nailed was that patronizing tone that was... Like, I don't have to pay for it. And, yeah, well, I mean, it's just so obvious to me who the guy is. But unfortunately, a lot of me is in there. So there you are. <laughs> uh, one thing I loved about this movie is the visual style. You took a lot of care in making sure everything. Like my favorite scene we were talking about with my students, you know, during the during the movie is um, where Joe calls Lana. He puts on a mask. Yeah. He has a red blinking, blinking light. And it's really subtle. It's something in which our student production students learn. You can do things very subtly sometimes. Yeah. Is that something you, would just, you really want to capture, kind of make it a very unique style? Yeah. I mean, uh, conceptually, I backed into this whole project tonally. It was, there was a tone I wanted to capture, which was a mix, and I thought lacking. Well, it was, I wanted to make a film that if I were still in high school, I would have wanted to see. That didn't exist. Um, and, and then I went to Tone, which was kind of mixing. I thought, gee, I was very um, influenced by a film called The Conformist, as John was too, which was beautifully shot. And I thought, why can't you do something like that? Mix it with humor. Mix it with sexuality. And, and kind of see where that goes. Um, with a, with a, um, a, a score that has nothing to do with melody. It's just texture basically, and, and tone again. 
So I had that mix in mind, a little bit on the dark side, if you will. Then I, what, okay, now themes. What am I doing here, you know? And then I found my themes, um, and, uh, which had to do with my take on capitalism at the time. And then I had to find the story. And Curtis, as an actor, I mean, it must be pleasurable, like when you have a camera that's more moving, it's more visual. Yeah, you're just, you know. Well, it was all new to me I, because I had only done stage work, so I didn't know anything about film. I knew nothing about film. And so that part of it, I was just trying to focus on what my, my job was, and I, I didn't pay any attention to that part of it. I think the most important part of it for me as an actor was understanding from talking with Paul, knowing that he had spent so much time developing this, and he had such what he's talking about, the image that he had, how he wanted it to be visually, you know, and, and all of that kind of thing. I was really, more than almost ever, one or two times since, been really conscious of the fact that I was responsible to deliver something that had been long aborning, you know, that it was an, a large, it was a large thing. That it, this wasn't ju- I wasn't just working for an act for a director who had been hired to do something. It was something that came out of him and was really critical. So when he would give me direction in in uh, in during the course of the filming, it was always something that I paid extreme attention to because I was always aware of the fact that he knew so much what he wanted, even down to very very tiny details. Even into you know looking down when you say something, which I, I remember that particular one during the chase. What was that? It was during the chase. It was one of the lines during the chase when we're that like three week period we shot at right. night. It seemed like three weeks, right. and there was something that I said. I can't remember what it was, but you it was you, you said, "Don't look up, look down." You're talking to yourself or something like that. But I mean, it was one of those things where he didn't give a lot of direction, but when he gave it, you paid attention because you were so aware that he was so in control of what he wanted. Now, John, did you freak out when you saw in the script that we got to destroy a Porsche? No. <laughs> what I freaked out was when I called the head of Porsche America, who was represented by a good friend of mine, Joe Shapiro, who was the stunt pimp in this, by the way. Uh, and I got on the phone with him and I said, can we get you know, a Porsche free? And he said, no, no way. I said, come on, this will be phenomenal for you know, your brand. And they said, he said, are you kidding? We can't do that. And I said, this is exactly what the kids will love this. I mean, forget the fact that we actually use the line in a comic manner. Of course, there is no substitute after having a chase. This will make this car a legend. You know? And he said, you know, and I'll get fired. So cut to, you know, we shoot the movie, it comes out, and the Porsche scene becomes a very big deal. This guy calls me up and says, I still would have been fired, but you were right. <laughs> I thought, thanks, it cost us $28,000 or whatever to get the Porsche and then get a shell and take it out so we could dump it in the water. Uh, but that wasn't, you know, that, the, that wasn't the expense that was uh, uh, difficult for us. The difficulty for us was two things. One, even though Paul had written and had some experience writing and I had produced and had some experience producing, was that Paul's nature is very specific. And his visual style, I always, I loved it from when he first told me and then when he started shooting it. And it was very exacting and it was really good. 
So in order to have the time for him to get his, vil- his vision realized was going to be a problem. And, and it was. And we just had to figure out how to do it and get enough time and enough money to do it. So that was more, it was the, the level of execution and the precision of, of and, and, and visually, you know, I, I think this film holds up extremely well visually, uh, you know, and, 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 and the use of, you know, graphic elements. And knowing Paul as well as I know him now, he couldn't make a film in a different way. It, it just wouldn't be of interest to him. He, he just couldn't do it. So that was, that, it was his demanding need to make those frames really strong. And he fought for them, and, and I think he did a really good job. And by the way, we had three cinematographers. Yeah. We fired the first guy, Peter Solo, because he was a jerk. <laughs> but it's okay. If he was a jerk and he did a good job, we would have kept him. But he just put too much light spilling all over the place, and he wouldn't do what Paul wanted. And we had a shoot on Michigan Avenue, and you could shoot with some available light, and he didn't want to push the stop. All the little stuff. He just basically wasn't responding to Paul, even though he did you know, some good frames. And then we had uh, Ray Villalobos, who did a very good job, but then he had to leave. There was a scheduling problem. Right. right. And then Bruce Thirties was formerly known as the Prince of Darkness, came in and finished <laughs> up for Paul. And he, he also did a very, very good job. I love working with Paul. Yeah. Bruce was interesting because he's really talented. His father was a famous, famous Brilliant. cinematographer. And, and Bruce was capable of great work. But he was a little bit lazy. So, you know, I, he'd be lighting and he'd say, we're lit. And I went, really? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> you know? I'd say, now be an artist, you know. Uh, now paint with light. Uh, and he would get very excited by that, you know. He wanted to hear that. And then he would go to work. And then he did really good stuff. And he did, uh, Bruce did the train sequence, I thought was pretty cool. <laughs> Although there's a lot of editorial work that went in there, too, because we're playing with double printing um, in different rhythms to get that kind of ex- expressionistic feel that we wanted. And we are, oh, man, we are going like printing patterns 2, 3, 3, 4, 4, 2, 2, 4, 4, 1, you know, di- different rhythms of double printing that thing to give it a, a kind of a odd strobing effect, which is that, took that, us weeks that, to that do. Can I try to explain it a little differently? <laughs> and see if this makes sense. Paul, Paul was cutting with Richard, and he was playing, I think it was the uh, Steve Reich music. By the way, this would be a lot easier to do today, because we had to send right. stuff to the lab and get it back all the time. This was you know, on a chem. Okay? And what a chem had was, when you went very slow on it, it created a flicker. So when we were sitting around talking about the shot, you know, uh, Paul said something. I'm not going to repeat exactly what it is. I don't know if I know it. But that he really liked the way the image was going at two frames per second because it had this flicker with the music playing. And I had worked on a film, one of my early films, where the director was not very good at doing action. And because he shot things and the cars moved too slow, we had to come up with an optical way of creating faster motion. And it created a kind of interesting strobing thing by doing that patterns. And we had worked out these very complicated patterns to make things go a little faster and this, that, and the other. So that was my approach when Paul said he really liked this. And that's when we started doing all these different varieties until he found one that he liked. But it literally came from the strobing of that chem because it worked on a kind of prism. And now you could do it in a flash. Back then, it took us I yeah, don't know, it took a, a month, month and a half to get those images to work. 
And I thought, I, I think they held up pretty well. You know, it really was quite sensual and uh, quite something in both Tom and Rebecca. And really, you had two amazing sex scenes because the, the, the first one's very sensual, too. Yeah, so that was kind of uh, Did you approach that scene a little differently? Or, you know, when he loses, you know, the first scene with her. When you stayed on the stairs. Approach it differently? Yeah, did, or did, how did you approach, like, the stair scene? Wait, you got to tell yeah, the was... story of the first take on the, on the when she came. Yeah, in. when, you know, <laughs> this is well, I wanted, to, I wanted to, it to be over-romanticized, if you will. It was kind of almost ridiculous, but in a fun, sexy way. Um, so the doors blowing open, establishing the wind and, and the leaves coming in. Well, the first take, either they didn't have the fans up high enough, or I don't know what it was, and they had a bucket of leaves, and it just like they threw it in and went clump. <laughs> <laughs> it was like <laughs> so you got the Tom and Rebecca it's going like at everything. it. There's a little clunk, and we're like, yeah. 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 and there's a pile. <laughs> it was like, all right, let's set it up again. <laughs> Wait, and, I, and I think the second take, they blew too much. The fans were too big, and they blew I just it. Remember the clump, just, you know. And finally, we got, got to the third take. It was pretty good. Well, I've been hogging a little, so we have time <laughs> for a few questions. questions from you guys. Yeah, I, I I couldn't say, you know. I could. The st- <laughs> because I mean, no, st- no, styles no, evolve. And no, but when, when, first of all, the old time rock and roll video was the first major video on MTV. This is a long time ago. And the style of Paul's subway sequence, literally for the next 10 years, was the style of most of the MTV videos and most of the commercials. And all the subway sequences that you've seen. Ever so. shot. And by the way, commercials, because they spend a lot of money per second or per minute or however you want to look at it, you know, are often very sophisticated visually. So they, they borrowed more than liberally. You know, in terms of storytelling, you know, John Hughes apologized at one point to me for his Ferrari and Ferris Bueller's day off, <laughs> you know, which was, I like the movie. But you know, there were other you know, probably examples, but you may know better you know, seeing it from a distance. But and old-time rock and roll was not a single oh, no. when we used it. I just thought it was, it was kind of timeless rock and roll and it would age well. Um, and then it became a hit because of us. Bob Seger released it as a single and, and sold a lot of copies. And then, did we get it on the album or not? I don't remember. Yeah, I remember being turned down at one point to get it on the soundtrack. No, so I think I we know. did get it on the album. Yeah. And, and the video became massive for him. And he, you know, his career came, well, came back or became a career. I'm not exactly sure, but it became quite big and quite hot for a while. But if you Google the dance now, is you referenced, right? Someone referenced earlier. It's like everyone, oh, all over the, the world. Yeah. I mean, people are doing it all over the world in crazy settings and whatnot. It's hilarious. It's a totally sarcastic, cynical line because, again, he's coming off of seeing the sadness in this girl and concerned about her future. Um, um, I had that I literally sold the project I had that line before I had anything I had the last line here um, my name is Joel Goodson I deal in human fulfillment I made $8,000 in one night isn't life grand when I pitched the project originally to Warners I had those lines and I and uh, the studio exec laughed and, and made the deal um, but, but in terms of added it's, it's very cynical Dark line. That's what I meant it to be. So, if 
that answers your question. What inspired me? I was. I, I remember the first time I heard that cut, and um, we were casting, and I was in. We were in an office at Warner's, and I had a a radio there. It came over the radio, and as soon as I heard that opening refrain, I like dove across there to turn it up. Um, I, I, you know, I don't know. It was really the tone of of. of of, of the piece, I thought it was just um, just perfect for. I, I don't know if I placed it at the time no. in, in, in my mind, but I knew it was something I wanted to have badly the first time I heard it. Uh, and you know, the lyrics work for us, I guess. I'm always less concerned with lyrics than the mood of, of, of the music. And why do you think yeah. I mean the change now? Because it's, uh, why Pardon? do you think they're so resistant for the ending? It was a bloody battle. I mean, it was a six or eight month battle. It was really quite ugly. Yeah, and, and the only reason we got past it is because they were going to fire me. And I hadn't done the mix yet. And I knew what I needed to do on the mix, and there was no one else who was going to be able to step in and do that. But they were going to have someone come in and just shoot what they wanted to shoot. So it got pretty nasty. And we never had, we never had a premiere because of that. Because we're in conflict. Didn't have a cast and crew screen. And they, and they canceled our cast and crew screen. So until a month and a half ago, John and I never presented this film. Ever. And, in and, 30 years. And, and Paul, also, I mean, you, you know, the lines at the end of the movie, you asked the question. Because in the ending that came out, the lines are not, my name is Joel Goodson, I deal in human fulfillment, I'm 80,000. Well, that's part of it. But no, the, it was time of your life. Time of your life. Okay. It was a much different they wanted, meaning. They wanted an uplift at the end. And, and, it, and it, it, it didn't, deal, you know, your question and his response wasn't answered by what was ultimately in the film, which was a very frustrating thing yeah, it was. in my role it's as a supporter. turned the film upside down. Yeah. Yeah, having done yeah, this they did. many times, we had a screening then in San Diego of both versions. And the version that the studio preferred tested better. In my experience, which is pretty considerable at this point in time, you know, four or five points, Andy knows this as well or better than me, you know, there's some, there's some differences that are statistically not meaningful and there are others that are. And, you know, I actually have the test results. They're sitting in my desk drawer. Whenever I need to get angry, I just look at them. Uh, it's not that often. I need to help it. Uh, but it's, it, it wasn't that significant. It was one of those ones where they wanted to claim victory for a number of reasons. And, and fundamentally, fundamentally, they didn't understand what Paul had done. And by the way, you know, there were a number of screenings. I mean, the first screening we had, the first test screening at the Writers Guild, we thought went great. Yeah, it did go. Right? I mean, we're not idiots. They're not idiots either, but you're looking at an audience, you can see whether they're responding. And they were looking, you know, like so glum because there was a darkness to it because the question you asked, which was something that that was very important. You know, even though the tone at times is very, very, you know, comic, you know, it was asking questions about capitalism throughout the whole piece. You know, obviously a future enterpriser and a real enterpriser and what that means and what is selling, you know, all that stuff, you know, without being too certainly not being didactic. So it, it was, in my opinion, in my professional opinion, post 
a posteriori, after the fact, years later. It didn't make the difference statistically. It was something that they staged, something that they wanted to win, and they won. And, you know, we were not in a position to defeat them at that point in time. It was very, very, very tough. But we defeated them tonight. We defeated them. Yeah. Yeah. But one last quick, Curtis, I have something I've been dying to always ask you. Do you get more uh, people come up to you about fans, Better Off Dead, Moonlighting, or this? I, it's kind of equal with those, uh, actually. Um, depends on the age group, but yeah, it's, 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 it's about equal. But I will say that, that um, I would not have a career in movies if it weren't for this movie. Because, uh, because after this movie happened... Uh, Revenge of the Nerds happened and then Better Off Dead <laughs> happened and then Moonlighting happened and all three of those which are the cornerstone of everything that I've done since in movies uh, those all were directly connected to which is by the way the most fulfilling thing for a director it's, yeah. it's not the film it's, well, like, I mean, it's, it's yeah, the I mean, lives that go off in these new directions because right. I was in a cabin thinking about this stuff at one point and then a few years later you know all these careers are created especially with a young cast exactly and then if you think of I was thinking of this the other day uh, the amount of wealth that was created out of this project <laughs> yes. as time went on it, it's astounding if you start adding that up you know it's and does Tom share that wealth with you as a reward uh, <laughs> it's like 20%. You know. Ah, that's not so bad. Uh, <laughs> well, we always end our evening with the same question for all of you. Uh, can you tell us about a movie theater experience you had as a child? Something really special you can remember yeah. going to the movies? Yeah. So, Sharon, what is your favorite John, childhood you working movie on yours? theater experience? Uh, no, I, I, it depends whether what the age of child is. Uh, well, I, I would go... Th- uh, okay, I'm going to go a little... Slightly older. I think I was uh, 13 or 14. When I was watching television um, late night, uh, late at, really late at night, and they were showing old movies, and I saw You Can't Take It With You, Frank Capra's film. And it, I think in terms of life's choices, it profoundly affected decisions that I made later in life. So that would be a, a big one for me. Have a few, Curtis. Um, the one that, I mean, going back as early as I can is 10. And uh, my parents had been transferred overseas, so we were living in Switzerland. And there wasn't much to see in 64. And uh, there was one theater, a tiny little theater, maybe this big. And it was downtown in Geneva. And over the <clears throat> over the uh, thing was a big wooden uh, uh, picture of Laurel and Hardy, who of course were hugely, hugely more popular there than they were probably ever here in Europe. And um, all they did in this theater was run silent comedies. It's all they did, and they did it all day, all night. They would just put one after the other on. And I used to take the train, a real train, down to, uh, down to Geneva. We used a real train. I know you did. <laughs> um, down to Geneva, and, uh, and I would go and spend my whole Saturday watching early silent movies, comedy films. And those were enormously influential. That was before I even wanted to be an actor. 
Last year we did a Mary Pickford film with a piano player right there mm-hmm. doing a live score. It was fantastic. Which, which film? Yeah. Oh, 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 I forget. I'm sorry. What was it? Sparrows. Thank you. Oh. So, John, what about you? Early something? I, I will uh, take advantage of the fact that I was very immature as a child. So it took <laughs> me a long time to grow up. So I think I was a child well into when you should have been asked. Uh, it, and uh, I think there were two films. One was La Strada and the other was The Conformist, as Paul mentioned. Uh, but you weren't a kid when you saw The Conformist. I'm saying I was oh, a kid. Oh, I see. Okay, you're so, a kid. Yeah. so <laughs> retarded. Uh, <laughs> John was 40. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, but but uh, The Conformist, because it, it just, yeah, you know, first of all, it's the, an amazing film. It was visually and musically and narratively, it just had so much possibilities and it just uh, made you feel that there was maybe it was like what impressionism was to the painters of the day you know that, that, that anything was possible and La Strada also just deeply affected me and I happened to be studying at the time and read this uh, story from uh, R.D. Lang who was a uh, you know, a psychiatrist who lived with schizophrenics and he was treating a very, very uh, distressed and depressed woman who had com- attempted to commit suicide on a number of occasions. And uh, she saw the film. And in the film, for those who haven't seen it, there's a scene where R- Richard Basart playing the fool tells Julieta Messina, who was the wife of uh, Anthony Quinn, and was basically an abused woman, uh, a very simplistic philosophy of life, which is that everything has a meaning, even a grain of sand. And for this poor woman who had such a difficult life, it gave her a kind of faith and a belief that even though her life was difficult, it was worth living, and she played her trumpet with great, you know, great joy. And uh, this schizophrenic woman uh, saw the movie and was so moved by it that she, uh, she stopped behaving in a suicidal manner. And, and, and I remember when I read that, having seen the movie, I thought, oh, that's what a film can do. That's the connection that it can make. That it could, you know, in a way, save a life or affect people. And I thought that's that's pretty amazing. Never left me. Well, I would like to thank all three of you for one of the funnest nights we've ever had here. encourage you to really thank these wonderful Pollock interns you see in the white shirts. They're the ones who really produced this event and done all the work. Thank so you. So they're the ones who really get the most of the applause. So thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.